So um, we are in chapter 6 of Daniel. Lions. And who's our hero? Who's the hero? I can't hear you. Who? Ah, oh, God is our hero. Bottom line, that, that first slide, Carolyn, you just busted up. That's right. You want to turn me up? That's fine. That's even better. Um, first slide um, up there. Daniel is um, is whoa. Can you read that? Um, anyway, I guess I need to get these bigger. I can't read this morning. Um, <clears throat> Daniel is the person we're studying, but the hero of this book. In spite of appearances, is God. Okay. Just as a reminder, the Babylonians went down and completely destroyed Jerusalem, leveled the temple, carried off all of. In, the, the, in a number of different ways, the first wave, they carried off the most able of able people, including Daniel when he was a young boy. And then they carried off everybody else except for those who weren't worth anything. They got to stay in the land. Okay? Moral of the story is you want to stay in the land, be a deadbeat. Okay? All the rest got carried off to Babylon. Basically, the Babylonians would have been going around saying over and over and over again, our God defeated your God. Our gods are stronger than your God. See? And it would have been in your face continuously. But by the time we get to Daniel 6, the Babylonian empire is long gone. Daniel is no longer a young boy. He's no longer this teenager who's kind of been thrown into a room to see whether or not he can really assimilate and learn all of the Babylonian latest technologies and wisdom and ways of doing things. Now he is an old man. He's 80 years old. The Medes have taken over the Babylonian and the Persians and the Medes are now in control. When, when Daniel probably was first raised, um, actually, believe it or not, when Daniel was first a child, he would have been hearing about the Assyrian Empire that was overturned by the Babylonian Empire and now the Persian Empire. And rather than, you know, I mean, yeah, another Persian Empire. It's a new day and age. 80 years. If you are 80 years old, don't think God has not finished with you yet. Okay? He still has something for you. And if you are 30 years old or 40 years old or 50 years old and you're kind of going, what is God doing? Is he using me? Is my life going any place? Remember that God is working 
in spite of appearances, God is working. Last week, when we were staying, Bildasar, you know, and the guy who was that cup, you know, that he was drinking and everything before the nation got destroyed, nobody even knew who Daniel was. I mean, they had to be reminded about Daniel. Okay. There are times in our lives when we're in preparation, there are times in our lives when we're forgotten. And there are times in our lives, like our story today, when we are in places of significance. But through it all, and all the ups and downs of those 80 years, in spite of appearances, in spite of what it looks like on the nightly news, in spite of who might seem to have all of the power at any given time, what the book of Daniel teaches us over and over and over again is that God is in control. And I'm going to remind you of that song that we just got through singing. Um, he's not only in control, but he has chosen you. You will not be forsaken. You are not who you say you are, and that becomes really important. You are who God says you are. And the challenge is to be a Daniel and for 80 years to believe that. Day in and day out and up and down. In Daniel 6, a guy by the name of Denarius is, they call him Denarius the Mede, whatever, is now in control of Babylon. Um, this is one of those instances that as I started studying this passage, you can't begin to study this passage until you go through volumes of pages on who in the heck this guy is because nobody really knows who this guy is. His name doesn't appear in history. Darius the first, who is still 50 years later than now, is the one who actually divided up the kingdom and put people over each of the providences. And so some people thought it was him. And uh, there's just so many volumes. Some people think this is Cyrus' son. Um, there's just volumes about it. Um, I, here's what I'm going to tell you I really believe. Um, nobody can find this name in any of the pages of history. But so also nobody could find Beldasar's name in any of the pages of history 50 years ago. And then, lo and behold, guess what? They found it. When I was in seminary, they told us lots of things that then they discovered new things. Um, we're still discovering pages of history. And I think sooner or later we're going to find out who this person is. But that really doesn't make a difference. What really makes the difference is what happens in this story. It pleased Denarius, the guy who's at least over the Babylonian empire at this point in time, or what's left of it, that province of, of Persia, to appoint 120, whatever, any of these guys to rule through the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So we've gone from this kid, forgotten, to now he's one of the top three guys in, in the area. And the satraps were accountable to them so that the king 
might not suffer loss. See, what you have is Darius, in a sense, cleaning up the empire. Okay? Making sure that everybody who is collecting taxes is actually paying taxes. Okay? Um, Making sure that his kingdom is stable, that he's in control. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Okay. Daniel's in exile. Daniel's not a Babylonian. Daniel's Jewish. But he's going to be set up as the number two guy in the nation. Why? Because of his exceptional qualities. And it's going to become huge. Daniel's not in it for himself. Daniel's only in it for the king. You can't find a character flaw in Daniel. No matter how hard anybody's going to look, they can't find anything wrong with Daniel. He's a man of excellence. He's a man of character. And as a result, he gets promoted. Okay? As a result, he stands out. Now let me ask you this question. Can that be said of you? You know, one of the things in a, in a sense we're going to be looking at are the types of people that God uses. What we're looking at is how we live in exile. And rule number one about being somebody that God can use, rule number one about living in exile, is that you're a person of character. Okay? That you're not in it for yourself. Okay? Can that be said of you? Or do you fudge things just a little bit? Or do you tell the white lie just a little bit? You know? Or do you make excuses? for why you shouldn't have to keep that particular law that God gave. See, it's easy to do, especially when if we don't do it, or when, we, when we do it, we end up standing alone. What happens? At this point, the administrators and the said and the Sadraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of the government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of God. Why don't these guys like Daniel? I mean, he's the whistleblower. They don't like Daniel because these guys are in it for themselves. Daniel's in it for the king. See? They don't like Daniel because when Daniel goes to clean up the kingdom, it's going to involve making sure that they're doing their job, that they're not taking a little bit off the top themselves. You're a Daniel. You're not going to be popular. Tim Keller in a sermon on this passage basically says um, there's three things that we're called to do if we live in exile. Number one, we're called to be salt. Okay, um, Salt 
is a preservative. Okay. Salt takes that which is about ready to decay and makes it so it doesn't decay. But salt doesn't do any good if it remains in the salt shaker. One of the tendencies to happen when we go into exile, and we see this with an awful lot of the, the Jewish people in exile, is when we go into exile, we do one of two things. We either assimilate with the culture, become like everybody else, or we kind of hide in our own little enclave of people who are just like us. Okay? And that doesn't do any good. That's staying in the salt shaker. But Daniel gets out of this salt shaker and he gets involved in the place where he has been planted and he becomes God's character and God's presence in the place where he's planted. We're called to be salt. Matthew 5, we're called to be salt. And when we're salt, at the end, and we see this at the very end of this passage, we end up being a light to Jesus. But there's something that happens in between. When we're salt, we're probably going to get hurt. If you read the Matthew 5 passage, just before Jesus talks about being salt and light, he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Why? Because you're not like them. Why? Because you're living for something different. Why? Because you have a higher standard. And people don't like people who are salt. See? I've been reading a book. Um, Tim Peck, a couple weeks ago, read out of um, Herman Tulek's book on the Lord's Prayer. And um, I, I found it just a fascinating book, and so I've been reading it. And it really is this book that's all about these sermons that this Jewish pastor in the midst of Nazi Germany, not a Jewish pastor, a Christian pastor in the midst of Nazi Germany, okay, a German pastor is preaching to his congregation as, you know, his nation is losing the war and being bombed out on a continual basis. And, and, you know, one of the questions that people constantly are asking, so, you know, it's kind of like, where's God? You know, I just lost my house last night. We just lost, you know, the church just got bombed out. Where's God? And Tilak says, you know, it's really easy to blame God when we really should be blaming men. See? It wasn't God who brought about the war. It was really man who brought about the war. We constantly have a choice to either trust the ways of men or to trust the ways of God. But if we trust the ways of God, at times it's going to hurt because the ways of man don't like it and they want to fight against the ways of God and they want to snuff out the light. And that's what they try to do. Now, one extra piece on this, um, just a reminder. Not only, you know, I'm, I'm called to be salt, I'm called to get out of the salt shaker. One of the questions I would have is how are you getting out of the salt shaker right now? How are you in contact with people in your neighborhood or in the places that you find yourself day in and day out who don't know Jesus? Have you made some non-Christian friends recently? See, 
We're not called to be a holy enclave. We're called to get out into the world and be salt. But when that happens, it's going to hurt. Even when we do it all right, it's going to hurt. Daniel becomes a victim of hatred and entrapment. And so these administrators and satraps went as a group. I love this. They didn't go individually. Okay, bullies hang in groups, right? They went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. Don't you love this? How's King Darius feeling right now? Okay, they appeal to his pride. They appeal to his vanity. One of the questions I had as I was reading down through this is how often do I find myself wanting to get with a group in order to make me feel strong? And sometimes when I get with groups, I end up becoming like the group. And it's not the group I want to be with. But sometimes I also am susceptible to people coming and saying, Oh, Betsy, you're the greatest person in the whole world. Here's the latest and greatest. What do you think? I think this is what we should, you know. And, and it is very easy to make decisions out of what's good for me, out of what other people say is good for me, out of things that make me feel good. Am I susceptible to pride, to vanity? The royal administrators, prefects, and staff, advisors, and governors have all agreed, love that, all of these guys have agreed, everybody's against Daniel, that they should issue an edict and enforce the decree that everyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue that decree and put it in writing so it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. But Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs rooms with his windows open towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and praised, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Now, this is important. He doesn't go home and say, I'm going to show you. In your face, open up the windows. Okay. What he does is he just doesn't stop the practice that he's always had. He puts the law of God above the law of the Medes. But he has been doing that his entire life. Okay. This isn't new for Daniel. Daniel is able to be Daniel because of the consistency because of his disciplined lifetime of seeking the Lord day in and day out, three times a day. And three times a day, he faces Jerusalem according to the scriptures and prays for the restoration of God's kingdom. Giving thanks that God's going to eventually restore his kingdom. Giving thanks that God actually is in control despite appearances. 
How's your prayer life? How's your scripture study? Everything that we see through Dan, right here with Daniel comes out of a consistent prayer time, consistency in the scriptures. And with his eyes towards Jerusalem. I asked um, Cheryl Patton if I could share this. Um, um, I don't know if you know, Cheryl, Cheryl lost her mom um, on Saturday morning. Betty was just a saint of the church. Okay. Um, not an easy life in any way, shape, or form. Um, but her grandson said this. He said, Grandma's been living for this day, for Saturday, since the day, her entire life. Her entire life, she lived for Saturday. Her entire life, she lived for the day that she would go home to be with Jesus. Daniel's entire life is with an eye towards Jerusalem. See? An eye towards God's kingdom. God's restoring Jerusalem. See? That's where, that's the direction he's pointed in. Let me ask you, what is your entire life about? Is it about something here, or is it with an eye towards God's kingdom? Are you praying towards God's kingdom and thus giving thanks that no matter what, God is in control? Um, on a retreat this weekend, um, one of the things that, that Megan talked about was um, seeing the, the movie War Room. And... Um, she said it, it, it changed the way she, she prays. She says now she has this place that she goes to in her house where there are two chairs every morning. And she sits in one prayer and pictures Jesus sitting in the other prayer. And she prays every morning. Um, one of the things Richard Foster taught me years ago was that by having a consistent place where you go to meet God day in and day out, what that does is because it's a place where you've met God for so long, when, when you're going through those dry spots and you're wondering where God is, because that's the place where you've always met God, it's easier to find God again and to sense his presence again at those times when you're the driest. And what Megan said is that sometimes she's found herself in that room with those two chairs, and she says she'll sometimes get up out of her chair and go and sit in Jesus' lap sometimes. See? And she can just sense Jesus holding her. Now, if you go home today and try that, it's not going to work. But if you've developed this consistent prayer life of day in and day out seeking God, it's going to work. See? And that's what Daniel does. And if you want to survive exile and you want to survive 80 years and you want to be ready when the going gets tough and continue to be salt and light, then it takes excellence of character. It takes knowing the law of God. And it takes prayer. And one of the things you're going to get in, in, your, um, um, in your groups today is the prayer that we passed out um, on the retreat. It's a prayer with the exception of the last line that we added. Um, the last line of the prayer is from us, but the whole rest of the prayer is a prayer that Megan wrote and she prays on a regular basis that basically just says, God, use me. 
Use my hands. Use my eyes. Use my mouth. You know, use me this day. And when I got home and, and I'm processing all this and I'm getting an email from Lynn um, and she's telling me about this book. Should she say, what, what I'm, this book is calling me to do is every day pray and then listen and then do. And in a sense, that's what Megan said. She prays this prayer and then she listens for what God might have her to do. And then she goes and she does it. See? We're called to be salt. But that only comes out of a consistent time with God. So these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And so they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not do this? Um, And things get really rocky for Daniel. Now, again, one of the things that gets to be really fascinating here is we don't hear Daniel speaking much here. The only time we do hear Daniel speak is kind of towards the end, and it comes out in this gracious talk to the king. You know, in the midst of hurt and persecution, two things I'm going to throw out to you. One is we're called to continuously be gracious and loving. Okay. Romans 12, the very end of it, says when people say all these evil and horrible things against us, we're to respond with love, heaping coals of love on them. See? Um, in our retreat this, this weekend, um, it was all based around Psalm 46, but the end of Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. And as Megan talked about that verse, she said, you know, if you read Psalm 46, it begins with the earth giving way. It's as if you're in the middle of an earthquake or, and wars happening and everything, you know, all of a sudden kind of blowing up in our faces. And what happens when everything blows up in your face? What happens when things begin to shake around you? I mean, I have a tendency to hold, you know, to go try and fix it right away. But the psalm says, be still. That's what Daniel does. He doesn't run to the king and say, king, do you realize what you just did? King, do you realize who these people are? He is still, and he goes to God, and he leaves it in God's hands. And the king is absolutely distressed. Daniel's his friend. Daniel was his hope for storing up the kingdom, of getting rid of corruption. But the king is not strong enough to go against his own laws. He's not strong enough to do what is right. And in a sense, you have a picture of Jesus before Pilate. Daniel keeps his mouth shut. The king is unwilling to stand up. And Daniel gets thrown to the lions. And a stone is brought and rolled over the face of the, lion, of the den. And we have this picture of Jesus being put into the tomb. Daniel's left for dead. Um, this, you can't help but read this and point to Christ. You also can't help but read this and remember Joseph. Joseph in, in the Old Testament, in the, in, book of, I mean, in the last part of Genesis, 
everything in his life goes wrong. His brothers sell him into slavery because he's a goody two-shoes for his dad. They don't like him because he does everything right again. He gets into Potiphar's house, you know, and becomes the chief slave in Potiphar's house and gets thrown in prison because he won't let Potiphar's wife take advantage of him sexually. He gets thrown into prison, you know, and he becomes the chief guy in prison, you know, and is able to interpret dreams, but he gets forgotten in prison. Probably the saddest words in Joseph's life are about halfway through, and it says, and the cupbearer forgot Joseph. Have you ever been forgotten? I'm sure there were years when Daniel felt forgotten. But eventually the king has a dream and in Joseph's up there and he's kind of interpreting the dream for the king and next thing you know, Joseph is the number two guy and he's able to save all of his brothers. And eventually Joseph's dad dies and the brothers kind of are scared and they come to him and said, Dad told us, not, told us to tell you not to be mad at us after, you, after he died. And Joseph's response, response was, wait, Satan intended for evil. God intended for good. And what happens here is what these administrators intend for evil. God intends for good. Arius has a sleepless night. Some people feel like the way this is set up is kind of like a a trial by ordeal. You know, um, where if you're able to get through this and obviously you were innocent, Okay, Um, that's kind of how this reads. You know, Darius goes running to the tomb the next morning, just maybe hoping that Daniel's God really is who he says he is. And Daniel obviously answers the king the next morning, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before your majesty. The response of the king is to pull Daniel out, to throw the administrators in, them and their families, which seem really harsh. Okay? Um, Again, I'm going to go back to Telic's book for a minute. Telic makes a comment (coughs) that we have a choice either to trust God or to trust him. Man. And when we trust man, we find ourselves getting caught up in the ways of man, which end up in being in the ways of destruction. And when we trust God, we end up being receiving the mercy of God and the salvation of God. In a sense, the judgment becomes our own judgment as to who we trust. See? God is a merciful God. At the same time, there's a sense that also sin goes to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. But so also does righteousness go from generation to generation. What are you teaching your children? They are mimicking you. Type of stuff. God is a merciful God and there's salvation that is found in following him. But if we continue to follow the ways of man, it ends up in destruction. King Darius, though, writes to all the nations 
And he says, I issue a decree that in every part of the kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. He is active. He's the living God. He endures forever. He rescues. He saves. He performs signs and wonders. And his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. His kingdom will outlast every kingdom. It's going to outlast the Babylonian kingdom, the Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom. It's outlasted the Roman kingdom. It's outlasted every kingdom of this earth and will continue to outlast every kingdom of this earth. And the question is, what kingdom are we living in? The question is, do we really believe that our God is active and that our God is able? And if we do, then are we willing to keep his laws? Are we willing to be people of character? Are we willing to be people who seek him and don't fear anything else but him, who put our faith in him? This end decree, in a sense, finishes off the narrative portion of the book of Daniel, the first half of the book of Daniel. Okay? That kind of shows us how to live in exile. The second half of Daniel, we're going to learn why we need to live that way because we're going to see what's really going on in the kingdoms of this world. But because of what's going on in the kingdoms of the world, we're being told we need to live this way. Now, one of the authors, or one of the people that I, that I listened to made this comment. Daniel's being saved from the lion's den is an exception. It's not the rule. Daniel's being saved from the lion's den is a temporary salvation. Because the real salvation comes with the resurrection, with the return of Jesus. The passage to read is to go home and read the very last part of Hebrews 11. The first part of Hebrews 11 is really good. It's a faith chapter. It talks about people being saved out of the lion's den. It talks about Abraham doing all these great things for God. But that chapter ends with people who weren't rescued out of lions, who were sawed in two, who were burned at stakes. And then it has this final caveat. It says, all these people that I've just listed died without the promise finally being fulfilled in their life. They all died an earthly death without the promise finally being fulfilled in their life because the resurrection hadn't quite happened yet. The coming kingdom had not quite yet been finalized. But in dying... They died with their eyes towards a hope that was yet to come and a crown that was yet to come. And so the Hebrew passage says, throw off everything that hinders you, everything that entangles you, and keep your eyes fixed on Jerusalem. Keep your eyes fixed on the coming kingdom and live for the coming kingdom. My question to all of us is, what do we need to take away from this chapter? I threw up some slides. You're going to get these sent to you, but they're great questions. Um, how's your character? How consistent your walk with Jesus? Who or what do you fear? Do you fear the groups around you? Do you fear other people? 
Do you fear that what you have might be taken from you? Daniel feared God alone. What are you praying towards? Is your God the same God as Daniel had? Am I tempted to assimilate, separate, or engage? Will I obey God's laws? Or what laws am I basing my life on? There's a book that's coming out this spring. It's called Costly Obedience. And it's a book that talks about the cost that we pay to obey God's laws. See? It means saying no to things that other people are saying yes to. Are you willing to obey God at all costs? Let's go to the next one. Fear God, be faithful, trust, be consistent, discipline, directional, above reproach, be still. Next one. Yeah, next one. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. They're more precious than gold. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. Do you believe that? Or do you kind of compromise it? And one of the questions, let's go to the next slide real fast, and I'll just let you know this. One of the questions, this is the slide I absolutely hate, but it's what, one of the questions that people have is when this book is written. Okay. Now, I, I don't really want to get into this, but it was only about 300 years after Daniel that after Alexander the Great and the rise of the Greek Hellenistic Empire, that the Hebrews in Jerusalem who had come back from the exile were again tempted to compromise. During the time of the Maccabees, the governor at the time in Jerusalem tried to Hellenize Jerusalem, make everybody Greek. They forbid the Jewish people from offering sacrifices, from being circumcised, from going to God in the temple. And instead, they started offering sacrifices that were detestable to God in the temple and requiring the priests of God to offer those sacrifices of abomination in the temple. And the Maccabees stood up and said, no, we're going to be like Daniel. We're not going to do what you call us to do. We are going to keep God's law first and foremost. And they eventually end up overthrowing and taking back Jerusalem with religious freedom, even political freedom, until the Romans come in. Where are you called being challenged to compromise?
Where are you being challenged to assimilate? Are you able to stand up? Let's pray. Lord, it's a fun children's story. But the call to be salt and light and to be willing to be persecuted as we lovingly and gently are still before you with our eyes fixed on you in the midst of not understanding, in the midst of 80 years, isn't easy. May we keep Daniel as an example. May we finish the race well. May we show others the reality of your living and reigning presence to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good morning.